Hosea chapter 14. I'm going to read Hosea chapter 14. Actually, we're going to finish the message we started last week, but I'm going to kind of uh, review a little bit of it too. But uh, Hosea chapter 14 is a plea to return to the Lord. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him take away all iniquity except what is good and we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips Assyria shall not save us we will not ride on horses that is win battles for ourselves And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Idols. In you, the orphan finds mercy. We're just orphans. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has returned from them. And I will be Like the dew to Israel, he shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Then shall uh, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble at them. Hosea was the prophet of God to the northern kingdom. The nation was divided at that time with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea's time of prophecy was during a very dark period of the northern kingdom's history. The judgment of God was already determined and was coming to the nation by the terrible Assyrians scattering them among the nations. The kingdom of Israel would be no more forever. We talk even today of the of the ten lost tribes. Judah would follow very soon. But unlike Israel would return from their captivity in Babylon in order for the Lord Jesus Christ to be born in the city of Bethlehem of Judea. And after his death and resurrection, then Judah would be destroyed by the Romans there in 70 A.D. 
when, when we read here of God's intention to restore Israel and Judah, and that's one of the things that comes up frequently among the prophets, is God gives these words of judgment and then He promises restoration. And uh, it, it gets a little confusing and you scratch your head and say, how will that be? And there's one whole uh, theological persuasion there, dispensationalism, and that is sought to uh, seek that, uh, figure that out. And they, they really believe that God is going to restore the nation of Israel in the land of it uh, again. And Jesus Christ is going to come and rule over it for a thousand years on earth. A golden age. I, I, can't, I really can't find that in Scripture. I, as one fellow said, uh, you know, uh, uh, when the rapture comes, what are you going to do? I said, I'll just uh, turn to you on the way up and say, you were right. <laughs> I don't, but I don't think that's going to happen either. What uh, is going to happen? Well, we need to search the scriptures. That, and that, that's, that's my thing. You know, I, I like to, when I see these things, I, I, I search them out and I pray over them and I read and I, and I think and I pray a lot. But here we do read of the restoration of Israel and Judah. And so in notice in... Uh, Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will make the valley of Achor, which, is, which means trouble, a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So in the context here of this promise, the Lord explains that Israel will call him my husband and she will forget the Baals. And he declares, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. This is often used in wedding ceremonies. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I mean, think of the promise here. God's going to do this, not them. And he said, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy uh, on no mercy, and I will say to, my, to, to not my people, those were the children of uh, Hosea, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. When did this happen? I mean, when did this take place? It's in the gospel age. You and I. We're the ones who have found mercy. We are regarded, the Gentiles are regarded as no mercy. Yeah, it's happened here. So the question is, how does God resolve this conflict? Hosea's marriage to Gomer, which is the center of this book, is the real source of the illustration. It is a prophetic illustration of his plan to raise up for himself a faithful bride. And without doubt, Yahweh 
in Hosea is the pre-incarnate Son of God. I think many of the passages in the Old Testament that use the sacred name Yahweh that we have in our Bibles as capital L-O-R-D in all caps. The covenant name of God is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. So, uh, we see here a soiled bride sanctified through covenant love. So that's my first point here. Uh, a soiled bride sanctified through covenant love. And as we noted last week, Hosea's domestic life illustrates God's message to the nation. So in chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, He and he said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. In other words, Gomer was a cult prostitute in Baal worship. God commanded this man. I've, I've read all kinds of arguments to, that, to what was involved here, but the simple truth of the matter is that's what God commanded him to do. And he did it. Take a cult prostitute for yourself and have children of whoredom. He said, have children of whoredom. They're, they're, they're Hosea's children, but notice it says they're called here children of whoredom, which means they weren't his either. These children were not his. But he claimed them for his own. And then the reason is given, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he's going to serve as a personal illustration of how God works. A living illustration among the, the people of Israel about how God works. So Gomer's children here represent the fruit of their rebellion. So the, the prophet's marriage then was commanded of God to illustrate this plan of redemption by which the Lord would take to himself a sinful bride. What is that sinful bride? Well, we know from the scriptures that it's the church. It has to be. Jesus calls the church his bride. His bride has made herself ready. Those who have, were previously alienated from God and serving various lusts and passions, like Gomer, we're all sinners who did not know the Lord and lived for ourselves and for our own lusts and passions. What a sin, you know, in a sinful way. And yet Hosea redeemed Gomer for 15 pieces of silver. What? It says the price of a slave. But the price of a slave was actually 30 pieces of silver. Remember, Judas sold Jesus. So this woman here was, uh, was redeemed for 15 pieces of silver. Just half that. Half the price of a slave. And here God was commanding her to dwell with him then for many days. 
God said, you redeem her and then she will come and live with you for uh, for many days. That's chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Loyal only to him. And I think this is important to understand. When he redeemed her, she came and lived with him faithfully, did not commit any of her sins. She was loyal only to him as he would be to her. He would be loyal to her. I think that was very hard for Hosea too. But he did it in obedience to God. He did it in obedience to God for sure. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He redeemed us to himself with the price of his own blood. And he too has sanctified his soiled bride to himself. So we read there in Ephesians 5 verses 26 and 27. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. How in the world can any Christian read this and then live for himself? God's design is that when he redeems us, we live for him alone, loyal to him as he is to us. So this is what uh, Gomer did. She was to dwell with him as loyally as the Lord would be to her. And so the Lord then applied this. And uh, we, we note here in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 2, For I desire, notice, I desire steadfast love, covenant love. You know, marriage is a covenant. We enter into covenant in a marriage. And we make vows and promise things to each other. Sadly, it doesn't always work. But with God, it does work. For he said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And this verse was cited then by Jesus twice in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter Matthew 9, 13 and in Matthew 12, verse 7. And I wanted you to consider the first sighting of it there in Matthew 9.13. Go and learn what this means. He's saying to here to the Jews. These rebellious people. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here, following the Septuagint reading, the Septuagint has mercy there instead of, uh, of hesed, has the word mercy. For I came... Not to call the righteous, but sinners. But sinners. Wow. See, the Jews thought they were okay. They thought they were righteous. They thought they didn't need it. They didn't need any redemption. They were the people of God. Besides that, they had the temple and the offerings, and they were good to go. No, Jesus said, you don't understand. You don't understand. Clearly, God intends to redeem out of Adam's race a new race that he will uh, that will walk here in his ways and live holy lives to the glory of God. That's the church. 
So then we do have a divorce because Hosea tells us that uh, he divorced his unfaithful wife because we're returning to uh, the temple prostitution. And then the Lord said to him, there in that third chapter, go again, verse 1, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they return, though they turn to other gods. This is the amazing thing. And so after then he redeemed her, the Lord showed that he too would divorce Israel. So for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Chapter 3, verse 4. I mean, they're not going to have any anything. However, and, and it's interesting that after they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they were very careful not to worship any idols or pagan images. But they still didn't belong to him either. So, but afterward, in verse 5 there, it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, that's Jesus actually, the son of David, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So how would this redemption occur? Well, first of all, the divine solution is revealed there in the 11th chapter. We covered that last week. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And uh, Jesus here is identified as the son in uh, the Gospel of Matthew again. The, uh, that was understood from the passage itself that it referred to the people of Israel. But Matthew clarifies this for us. He says, Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea 11 verse 1. Matthew here is written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and he attributes these words to the prophet, of the prophet to Jesus, not ethnic Israel. You see, because as we pointed out last week, there's two Israels in view. The first, ethnic Israel, is the natural descendant of Adam, which persistently refused to hear and obey the Lord. The second, the true Israel, is also the second Adam, hearing and obeying his heavenly Father. And all who are called to faith in him are in him, as the Israel of God, 
having been delivered from the curse of the first Adam. And this is what Paul deals with here in the 11th chapter of Romans. So we read here, Israel, that is the nation, the ethnic people, failed to obtain what? That is, the righteousness of God. They sought righteousness by their own efforts, by their own works. And they did not obtain the righteousness of God. That is God's approval of their righteousness. They did not, they failed to obtain what it was seeking. And they didn't, and their seeking was by works. But then Paul says, the elect obtained it. That is, the believing remnant obtained it. And how? By faith alone. Here's the principle. And then it says, the rest were hardened. Paul means here in judgment, as demonstrated then by Paul's quoting there from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. When the word of God was preached to them, they could not receive it. That's the judgment of God. We're living in a day when that's, a, when that's true as well. Jesus said they don't have ears to hear. Let them, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So then Paul continues here in the 11th chapter talking about how the natural branches, that is ethnic Israel, was removed from the olive tree. The question is, what is the olive tree? The olive tree is not, is not ethnic Israel. The olive tree is Jesus Christ himself. Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the olive tree. The natural branches were removed from the olive tree. And the tr who is the true Israel, so that the wild branches, that is Gentiles, could be grafted in. Not all of the natural branches were removed, because God had a people. The elect obtained it. See, he's talking about the Jews. And Paul himself said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So Gentiles would be grafted in, and thus Paul concludes in uh, verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. So here's the divine principle in review. Again, we covered some of this last week, but I just want to re remind you here. The divine principle at work is clearly stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. In Adam all die. So in Christ, also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, here's two things set in comparison. And they are they're, they're equal. In Adam, so in Christ. In Adam, so in Christ. That's the, that's the issue here. As Adam was the seminal head of the race. That is... I'm, we're, we're all related. We all have Adam's DNA. 
Every single one of us have Adam as our great, 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 great granddaddy. And as Adam was the seminal head of the race, he passed his fallen nature on to all his offspring. I was born a sinner. I didn't become a sinner by doing bad things. I was born a sinner. And I do bad things because I am a sinner. I didn't become a sinner by doing bad things. I am a sinner because I was born one. So that presents the problem. So the, and the consequence is that Adam, that in Adam all his posterity sin naturally, and because of that they die. We were just talking before the service this morning about people who have passed away. Men die. Why? The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 So Adam's connection to the race was more than that of a co of covenantal representative. This I disagree with a lot of my Reformed brethren on this regard. They believe Adam is the federal head of the race. I think there is some truth to that. He represents the race as its federal head, as Jesus represents the church as its federal head. But I think it's far more than that. There is... It, it, it's not just a covenantal representative as the, in this federal headship view. Adam was the true seminal head of the race. I'm, I am his natural seed. His sin nature passed on all his descendants in the same way that one passes physical characteristics on to their children. Everyone is a sinner by virtue of having been born to parents who were sinners. And there is a natural union of all in Adam. Now there, now here's where the problem comes. <laughs> so in Christ shall all be made alive. How is that possible? If, if it is the same in Christ, the question is, how is Christ that's seminally related to us. Because I don't carry his DNA. Hmm. See, even more importantly, how did Christ escape the curse of Adam? If he was born a human being, like all human beings, we sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how did Jesus escape that in his becoming human? And the answer to both of these questions is the work is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we 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 tend to kind of uh, not think of how important that work was, but you and I could not be saved if it had not been for the fact that the Holy Spirit came to work that work in us. Let me explain it just briefly here. First of all, Christ became a human being through the unique work of the Holy Spirit. He impregnated Mary supernaturally. The virgin birth. There's a lot of 
theologians who deny the virgin birth. I don't know how you can deny the virgin birth and expect to go to heaven when you die. Because the virgin birth is absolutely essential to the whole process. So in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. When the Virgin Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she was to bear a son, she inquired, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Luke chapter 1 verse 34. Gabriel explained, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. See, so the result of this virgin birth is twofold. First, the virgin birth kept Jesus from inheriting Adam's nature. It comes through the father, not the mother. So Jesus had no human father. He was truly a man, truly a man. Just like Adam was made directly by God, he was truly a man. So Jesus is truly a man. But he was also sinless. He did not have Adam's nature. Isn't that, isn't that a marvelous truth? He's called, that, he's called holy. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22, which cites here Isaiah 53 verse 9. Then we read also in, in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Notice, a high priest. See, God's problem with, with, in Hosea with the, with the uh, children of Israel was the, the priest's failure. He said, I'm going to have a new one. Jesus. But this high priest is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Wow. Second, Jesus possessed a unique human existence. And I, I addressed that last week. Like Adam, being created directly by God, he was called the Son of God. Angels are sons of God. Heavenly creatures, and there's probably creatures we don't know anything about up there, that were created directly by the hand of God. And they have no marriage. They don't reproduce. They have eternal life. So, so here was Adam created directly by the hand of God. And that's the way Jesus was, was formed by the direct hand of God, the Holy Spirit. All Adam's other descendants are sinners, but Jesus is not. So understand the difference here. As God, Jesus was only, the only begotten Son of God. In fact, I, I like that uh, uh, translation better when it refers to Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it comes from Psalm 2 and verse 7. You are my son. 
This day I have begotten you. That verse has really thrown a lot of theologians. Psalm 2.7. What does it mean? I believe that is a reference to Jesus' eternal existence as the only begotten Son. This day is a reference to eternity. In other words, there's never been a time when Jesus what did not exist and that He came into existence. Here's the mystery of the Trinity. But the same thing is duplicated now in His humanity. You're my Son. This day have I begotten you. Jesus was like Adam, created directly by God, Adam was the son of God because his, uh, because his human existence was the creative work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' body was also created by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. So that all in Christ have eternal life. You know, you know what eternal life is? We're never going to die. And it's not an unending succession of days and hours like we do experience here in this life. It's an ever-present now. Boy, that's just... That will be very hard for me to realize. That I'm always living in the moment. (laughs) As they say, I'm living in the moment. But I'm going to live in the moment eternally. And they become Christ's through the new birth, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. And thus, in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, the Holy Spirit does in you what he did in Mary's womb. He creates a new thing. It's called the new birth. Believers are born of the Spirit, according to John 3.8. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. First John 1, verses 12 and 13. This new people in Christ are made up of more than redeemed Israelites. Their Gentiles are now also part of Israel, the Israel of God which according to the prophecy of Caiaphas, the high priest that year, who said that one should die for the nation and not for the nation of Israel only, but also to gather in one sons of God scattered abroad. That is Gentiles as well. So children of whoredom, I'm going to move along here. What does a real Christian look like? Children of whoredom. And this won't take as long. But the former life and its fruits are seen in Gomer before redemption. So we read there in chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for, uh, to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So the first son of Gomer was called Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. 
Or it can also mean God scatters. And how, how, what do we mean? Uh, I don't know if you are from. Well, I, back when I was a young man, we used to uh, produce lawns by broadcast sowing. In other words, we had a bag of seed. We took the seed out and we, with our hands, we threw it on the yard. Scattered it on the yard. So we sowed. God sows, God scatters. You scatter by sowing, or sow by scattering, that is. And the reason for the name is explained. In just a little while, I will punish by scattering the house of, of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of, of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That's 1, 4, and 5. Hosea's prophecies, like Isaiah's, contain word plays to show either a positive or negative acts of God as connoted by the name. In this case, God is either scattering in punishment or sowing in grace. So this is the first sign, Jezreel. Jehu, in obedience to God, seized power over Ahab in 841 B.C. when the prophet Elisha following the commands of the Lord there to anoint him, anointed him to be the king. That's 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I won't read that. However, Jehu was also responsible for the death of Ahaz, the king of Judah, according to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. He did this in disobedience to the Lord. So God was punishing the house of Judah because of the murder of the Davidic king of Judah in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6 that occurred in the valley of Jezreel. The second child was a girl named Lo-Ruama. How did you like that name? Lo-Ruama. Lo-Ruama. They just called her Ru for short, I guess. Or maybe Lo for short. Uh, Lo-Ruama. And that means not pitied. And really it has the connotation of unloved. Probably because Hosea's denial of the fatherhood. You're not my daughter. But I'm going to take you for myself anyway. The name comes from the Hebrew Racham. Racham, which means compassion. And lo is a negation. No compassion. No racham. Actually, it's a twisting of the word a little bit, uh, ruama, but it's from the root racham, which means uh, compassion. So, no, not pitied, not pitied or unloved, showing that love. Uh, actually, racham is is compassion, showing love and tender affection. Hosea's rejection of the child reflects the Lord's rejection of ethnic Israel. Call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. One, chapter 1 verse 6. Then a hint is given in the following verse as to God's future purpose. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. In what way? The immediate implication here involved the, their return from the Babylonian captivity 
to be reestablished in the land. But that was only to provide for the real and ultimate reason, which was the coming of Jesus Christ. The true Judah. So then, the greater purpose realized in Christ to gather a people for his name is seen in the third child. So here we have another boy born. Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami. Which is not a people. See, the, the Ami is people. Lo is the negative. No people. Not a people. So the covenant privilege that God gave to Israel was, I will walk among them and will be their God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is found in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 12 and 13. But Israel, ethnic Israel, refused to acknowledge their covenant Lord. So the Gentiles then, as regarded as aliens, and not in any way part of the people of God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 38, were declared then, uh, uh, chapter 32, verse 8, excuse me, says the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Peter then cites this passage to show that, that the Gentiles, because of Christ, are given mercy. So we read there, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And Paul re reiterates that in Romans 11, why the natural branches were taken out in order that the Gentiles could be grafted in. Wow, what a blessing. And this is the message of Hosea. God rejected ethnic Israel, but instead raised up the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 and verse 16. So the door of hope is again opened in this condemnation of ethnic Israel in chapter 1, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And you read there in the book of the Revelation of a multitude that no one could number out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. And they will say, you are my, and God will say, you are my people, and you have received mercy. And then the, the new life is the work of the Spirit through the, Lord, the Lord's promised mercy. So we read there, therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and, and uh, uh, there I will give her vineyards in the, in the, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of youth, at the time when she came out of Egypt. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. So we read there in the second chapter. So what does a real Christian look like? A real believer knows the Lord. And the Lord contended with ethnic Israel's priests, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no fruitfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of the God in the land. There's the problem. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But new covenant believers 
are themselves priests. According to the word of the Lord. Do you know the Lord? See, this is the point. A lot of of Christians claim to know the Lord, but they have no real desire to know the Lord. They just want to be assured that when they die, they're going to heaven. They're never in the book. They don't attend the preaching. Yet they want to call themselves Christians. Real Christians know the Lord. Second of all, real Christians are disciplined by the Lord. And here the Lord threatened Israel. I will discipline all of them. (laughs) I'm not going to read this whole passage either. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 10. But Israel's final destiny was declared there in chapter 9, verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. But what does God do for his own? When we, have, when we start acting like Adam's children again, he goes after us and brings us back to himself. Just like we read concerning Peter in uh, John 21. Peter said, I'm done, I'm going fishing. Jesus said, no, you're not. You're going to take care of my sheep. You denied me three times, now I'm going to make you confess your love to me for three times. And you're going to put away your fishing pole and pick up your Bible. And then thirdly, and lastly here, real Christians heed God's pleadings. When God pleads with us, we come. He says, come, and we come. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. The third day, that Jesus was raised on the third day. Oh, praise. So we read, sow for yourselves in righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. He pleads with us, and we seek him. Seek Him with the whole heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great truth that's revealed here in the book of Hosea about what Christianity is really all about. What Israel failed to do, Lord, let it not be true of us in any way. Let us not be attracted to the world, but let us only be attracted to You. Let's love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, as it was commanded in the Old Covenant. But now, because of the Spirit of God who lives within us, we can love you the way you ought to be loved. We can seek you the way you ought to be sought. We can know you the way you ought to be known. We can live for you and see your greatness in our lives. Father, I pray that your blessing upon each of your people here today. And Lord, may Christ be glorified in every way. We ask it in his name.